Harnessing creative collaboration at scale has countless benefits for business, society, and communities. In this episode, I speak to Leslie Williams, the CEO of Timulhong Precinct and an inclusive innovation practitioner who has been at it for over two decades. The thing is, like-minded people working together don't always transform systems or make a shift. And like-minded people often have a common agenda, so, you know, it's easier. But when you are looking at transformative change, you often need to bring people on board that you don't, that you're not always likely to work with. When done well, creative collaboration can have a transformative impact on business, society, and communities. If you are interested in learning more about creative collaboration and how to make it happen in your own community, keep listening. Don't miss out on the latest insights. Subscribe to The Lead Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Lead Creative Podcast, where we talk to creative industry leaders, influencers, and brands. We discuss the strategies that influence brand thinking and shape industries. Thought leaders and heads of agencies let us in on some of their thinking and insights. I'm your host, Mongye Zimtati. Enjoy the show and please share and subscribe. Leslie, thank you so much for making time to talk to us after so long. Um, yeah, what a pleasure. Well, Mongesi, my brother, my fellow loud laugher, always <laughs> awesome to see you. Thank you for the invitation. Awesome, awesome. Leslie, let's start here. I mean, <clears throat> over the course of nearly two decades that I've been following your work, you've been, you've been instrumental in enabling creative collaboration, whether this was at the Impact Hub or today at Simulukhong. What are some of the dynamics involved in getting strangers to collaborate and build lasting solutions for society? Sure. I think one of the things we often forget is that when we start a project, a venture, a movement, we often need to engage people with three capacities. The head, which is the intellect, the stuff of uh, getting things done, the pragmatic things. The heart, and it's really the heart that drives the passion before you get them to actually use their hands to get to work. Mm -hmm. And what I've seen is that when you truly listen to people and where they're at, you invite them from that point of view. You find that connective tissue that binds what you want to do, what, what they want to do. And sometimes we see a common opportunity or common problem. Right. So we don't go at people with some sort of value proposition to bring them on board. It really starts with um, that purely simple human capacity to listen and approach people with an invitation. So one of the things that, that I've always admired and, and, and followed about your work, um, I think from the days of you know, Impact Hub and today at Simulohong, is this idea of being able to get strangers into a room um, with a problem, whether that is a problem that society is facing, whether that is a problem that, I suppose, business is facing. You, you are able to get people into rooms and get them to collaborate and create solutions at scale. Some of these solutions, of course, become big things and some of these solutions kind of fall by the wayside. Can you talk us through, first of all, how you get these kinds of people who don't know you and don't know each other to collaborate, but also what makes the successful ideas successful out of the ones that come out of those spaces? Sure. So I often, you know, when one invites people to a space or to an event or to an initiative, the experience of the contribution starts with the invitation. And um, quite often, I'm not the subject matter expert in society on whatever topic, be it energy crisis or uh, xenophobia, uh, which I was uh, usually involved in. I'm not the subject matter expert. I often see something. And sometimes I have a hunch. Um, what I'm really good at is coffee dates. I love meeting up uh, uh, and having coffees with people. So I kind of look at, like, who is that next person that's interested in something and, and particular angle, and they may have some sort of richness mm -hmm. um, to contribute to the discussion. And I just literally get insights. And sometimes I set myself a target, and I may just have, say, I'm going to chat to five or ten people. 
and ask them who else should I, I speak to. So there's a bit of lobbying happening, mm-hmm. if you like, mm-hmm. behind the scenes. The scene. So you're really connecting with, with people and, and finding that, that, that common thread. At that point, people already feel like they have a sense of responsibility sure. to make a contribution. Sure. So by the time an invitation goes out, number one, it needs to be framed in a compelling manner. Mm -hmm. And often that compelling manner will be shaped through the dialogues we've had with people before the actual invitation goes out. Because then you know you're not just speaking from your own brain fart, if you like, from your own set of assumptions, but you've kind of tested and validated some of the thinking. And like I say, you don't have to have it perfectly. It just needs to be compelling enough and I think true enough People, people know when, there's, when they're speaking or, or connecting with others who are authentic. And they understand who are just hopping onto something because it's a, a trend that's going to pass by. And when inviting people, I often, you know, ask people to really think about what is their role in this? Like, what is their contribution? And it's twofold. Like, what, what can you give and what are you seeking to receive right. um, from this moment mm-hmm. together? Um, because I think, you know, when we start networks or innovation hubs, especially networks, people sign up to networks and say, oh, that network was useless. And then they leave and hop on to the next thing. But if they feel like there's an actual role to contribute and a place and they, they seen in these places, they tend to take shared responsibility in keeping it activated. There are a lot of things there and, and a lot of them um, go back to the, the, the ever famous modesty with which you you operate at times like because there's the one which is connecting the dots among people talking to people and connecting those dots and connecting the people which is an absolutely great thing there's also something else that I see um, that I see you do beyond connecting the dots and bringing subject matter experts which is which is I guess the the the, the big problem that you're seeking to solve the big, because there's something in that that makes you see the problem, follow it through, get people into a room to build a solution in a way that other people don't. And and then connecting the kind of right um, people to come up with solutions and to come up with those creative ideas and creative innovations. What are some of the things that you, 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 you see in some of the people that you talk to that you know that John, Jack, and Candice will work to kind of come up, you know, that, that this will be a great combination of strangers to come up with a creative solution? Because that in itself is a skill yep. that, that very many people um, haven't got. Yeah. You know... Uh it's, all, it's often easier to onboard somebody who's like-minded. Sure. But the thing is, like-minded people working together don't always transform systems or make a shift. And like-minded people often have a common agenda. So, you know, it's easier. But when you are looking at transformative change, you often need to bring people on board that you don't, that you're not always likely to work with. Mm-hmm. And um, a couple of years ago, Impact Hub used to have an annual global conference called Unlikely Allies. That really, really challenged me to really look at where and how do I collaborate with people I don't necessarily like yeah. or want to be around, mm-hmm. but actually we need that diverse voice at the table to get something through. So when kind of connecting the dots, I always look at like, what, what is enough for us to get started? Because sometimes people may, may not agree on the 10-step plan, but you may get them to, to agree on the first step. Yes. And then we experience that first step together. And what I often um, like doing is reflecting or holding a mirror to what are the actions and insights that came up. Mm-hmm. So kind of like act surface the feedback, Yes. reflect on the feedback, and then act again. And that can go like really fast when people get a, like really had an amazing time, then they go to the others. Mm-hmm. But when there is still some resistance, one needs to almost surface the learning and surface the insight, make that super visible. And that's where as a facilitator, um, I use, I draw on that skill, getting people in a room, having a conversation, yeah. surface um, the commonalities and the insights, but also name Name the elephants, name, like, peop, uh, you know, when we were speaking earlier about authenticity and, and, and being fake. Yes. 
people really get annoyed when you don't name the elephant. Because right. we all know it. We mm-hmm. see it, we mm-hmm. hear it. Go into the conflict. Yes. We don't always have to necessarily resolve it right there, but name the differences um, uh, that we have in the room in order to get into that, that action. Because if people feel like they're forced to come along, especially when their job sent them to be part of some innovation space or yeah, hackathon yeah, or yeah. whatever, they will be resistant and they won't give their all. They'll give enough just to show up so they can tick the attendance register. Mm-hmm. But when you listen and you speak to what their challenges and frustrations are and the opportunity from their agenda perspective, then they're like, oh, okay, I feel included. In I feel identified mm-hmm. um, yeah, in, in what yeah, you are naming yeah. or framing. There's there, there's something I'd like to pick up on uh, from what you've just mentioned, and this is this idea of of taking you know taking um, taking a, a an agenda item or taking a thing or a discussion point and moving with that particular discussion point and going on to the next one and building it brick by brick, step by step, level by level. At times. I'm assuming that that would almost change the direction of where you wanted to go in the first place, especially especially if you see it, um, if you see it at that at those kind of steps and levels, right? You can think we're going we're going east, but actually we end up going south. We end up going to a different solution because of these steps, because of these different iterations. How do you then? How do you then take on? this idea or this notion that we might actually end up at a different place completely with a creative innovation or with an idea. It's so rough because <laughs> we all have our thing that we really, really want to see. And, and as humans, we don't like compromising. And, you know, so, you know, there needs to be some level of openness. Mm-hmm. And um, openness is a practice. It doesn't come um, overnight. So for me as a practitioner of of, um, you said earlier, inclusive innovation, a practitioner of facilitation and moderation, I need to constantly practice. And I know sometimes I've had to walk away from something where I felt that that openness was not met. If you're in a three-day process and people are ideating and coming on, you know, putting amazing things in the pot, but if people leave with the, the same agenda that they came with and they're really pushing their idea and didn't allow the richness to enter into the idea, they fixated. Um, sometimes there is a walk-away point. Right. And that is okay. Mm-hmm. In fact, I had an experience of walking away from um, something I was part of in Cairo a few months ago. And um, a few of the stakeholders at that meeting came to Tsimolokong last week. Yes. And then they saw what I was speaking about. And they're like, oh, gosh, now I want to collaborate. Um, and when I, when I interrogated with, with one, one of the people who was open to telling me, he said, look, other networks have, put, have, have framed what you're framing now mm-hmm. to me. Yes. And I said, yes, I'm excited. And when I showed up, I realized using the same language as you, but they didn't, they didn't mean it. They didn't have that substance mm-hmm. um, behind mm-hmm. it. So the person came in reluctantly initially to me yes. in terms of collaborating. Now they're all in. They're like, let's do this. You know, there's plans to sign something by September. Right. And, you know, I think we forget that when we meet people in a room or in a conversation, that they're coming with baggage, <laughs> with a past life mm-hmm. beyond mm-hmm. that moment when you interacted yes. with them. Yes. So I think for me, it's very important almost to surface like, what is the no? Mm-hmm. People name it, they have an off-ramp opportunity. Um, find out like, what is the constraints? Because I think we, I don't want to say we're fluffy, but sometimes we go to, the, to optimism and only speak about what is possible. Mm-hmm. But we also need to find out like, what are, you know, what are your constraints? What do you, and also find out, what do you need in order to come along? Right, right. What what is a critical thing that you need to see us uh, bring into this? Now, one of the one one of the instances at which these kinds of things or these kinds of collaborative ideas, call them hackathons, call them you know collaborative, uh, I suppose innovation or whatever it is, right? One of the things that 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 happens with them is that is a failure of innovative of of rather implementing. Right, so we do. We come together, have this hackathon, have this thing, um, but implementation kind of falls flat. What, in your 
view enables these collaborations to reach implementation stage, to reach a stage where a stage where we don't just implement, but we actually make things better for society. I know that you do you do, you do these kinds of things a lot with with Timulukhong. One of the ones that comes to mind for me is um, is is your initiative the initiative that that's called Fagu Gesi, I think that that you do with Timulukhong, and and it's one of those. It's those kinds of things where people come together, they innovate, and then they implement, and the implementation goes to a certain level to change society for the better. What makes those ones, the ones that are successful, successful? Like, what makes that implementation work? I think those of us who are hosts of hackathons and, and game jams, etc., we need to be very clear about what we're inviting people into. And I don't think we, we clear ourselves enough about the objective often. You know, there is the hype factor. Mm -hmm. But if you want to get serious developers and serious contributors that are going to contribute to something in the long term, we need to frame it clearly. Mm. You need subject matter experts up front. There needs to be teachable moments, moments of exposure for people. And we also need to realize if you are planning a hackathon with people who are meeting each other for the first time, they need to go through their own team formation process. So... You know, old school, we'd say forming, storming, norming, and performing. Yeah. Now, in that hackathon weekend, you've only um, formed and stormed. You haven't le really learned how to work together. You haven't learned to gel as a team. Business partners are very hard to come for. Mm -hmm. So for me, these sort of open-ended hackathons, I like it for ideation when we're coming to create new ideas. And maybe corporates, um, corporates like these hackathons because their teams are the ones to take the idea forward. Mm. So when you're inviting people to that sort of hackathon, for me, we need to be transparent and say, like, we want to work either work with the teams or we will adopt the ideas and reverse engineer the solutions into our, into our corporate. Um, for me, the hackathons that really convert and make a difference is when teams apply. Right. People who have an existing relationship mm -hmm. or at least you know a few other people in the room and you may meet a new business partner or a new uh, a crowd you want to collaborate with or have a joint venture on and then decide. So within the Fakugese uh, Festival context with our animation jam, that is really a big challenge uh, for animators to see can they draw super fast and create a product from start to finish within 48 hours. Right. We also use that for talent identification. Mm. So we actively invite people to apply to Academy. With the game jam, it's typically teams that apply and the winning prize is that we incubate them and we build a business with them for the year thereafter. Right, right. So that's what I'm saying. Like there needs to be a super clear objective mm -hmm. for it to be mm -hmm. uh, successful. Then my next question with that, I mean, you've, you've partly answered it, but my next question on that is, is this idea of ownership, because a lot of the time, some of these types of concepts suffer from this idea of ownership, where if I've, if I've contributed to an idea or a concept, um, whether you've been, you've, been, you've been open and transparent about the fact that you're going to use this or about the fact that you want to use it somewhere else, um, people tend to, some people at least, tend to want to partly own or co-own or or, or, or or you know in some ways have some kind of stake in that particular idea whether it was collaborative with strangers or whatever the case is how do you address those kinds of challenges there's various ways i can respond to this the one is read the t's and c's yeah. that you're being invited yeah. to and ask ask the hosts of the hackathons like what up? Mm. <laughs> you know, do we, do we keep our idea? Do you guys become the owners of it? Do we evolve it? Um, we've had that situation with, uh, uh, in fact, like one of a short animation um, came, came out of a, a hackathon a few years ago. It's gone on to win international awards and features in international film festivals. And um, Jeannie Varty, who, who was the, the main person behind the idea, thank goodness she worked with Simulukum. And now we're trying to make it, make it into, into a feature film. Um, but the initial team that worked on it, um, you know, decided to pull away. Mm -hmm. But also at that time, Simulukum was, you know, clear the owner. And what we've learned as Simulukum itself is to really train people far more about what does commissioned work look, look like? What is, um, you know, again, being super explicit about what's the... Um, the, the why behind the hackathon and, and where ownership lies. Yeah. We also have issues, not necessarily similar Kong, but I've seen this at Impact Hub and other spaces where some people um, 
overestimate how much they contributed to an idea. <laughs> Always the case. And other team members will say that was a lazy assy who like hopped in and out contributed, but wasn't the actual builder, yeah. the one sitting um, um, overnight. Sure. So for me, this is where my preference comes working with, with teams because it's super clear. Um, but like I say, literally read the T's and C's. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, for me, it's been in this innovation, well, like you say, for almost two decades. It's scary two decades of my life. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, you know, it is important to look at IP. Yes. And yet, the people who, who develop something excellently mm -hmm. are the ones that, that take the idea to life. Right. Quite often, the people who are IP first... They're even afraid to get uh, to test their idea in the market. So, and even outside of hackathons, people have an idea, you, you go to launch, and then you wonder why six months later or two years later you burn so much money and you don't have a product or people haven't adopted your product. Mm -hmm. You need to have some level of openness, even if you ask people to, like NDAs, that is an option with, 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 I would say, use those for corporates. But if you want to get insight into whether you have a workable idea, yes. you need to share it. If you're enjoying The Lead Creative, please share this episode with your network and hit follow or subscribe. Enjoy the show. The, and, that is, and that for me is one of the places that I guess individual creators, creatives kind of struggle um, in, in one, in sharing their ideas and also in finding other like-minded people to work with, to collaborate with, to build with. What are, what are some of your thoughts on, on how these individual creators, creatives can, can do that, can find their, their, their kin, if you will, and also test their ideas in, in a safe space? So there, there are two extremes, um, I think, at, at bay. There is the one end of like, don't worry about the IP, just go and create. And then there's the flip, understand your value of what you're creating. <laughs> and I think we need, to, we need to find the balance. I don't think creatives in South Africa understand, and not only South Africa, it, it, it is a problem in the creative industries. There isn't sufficient knowledge and understanding of the business side of creativity. Sure. And that is one thing that I'm obsessed with at the moment, especially within the digital creative industries. Understand the value so you can have mature conversations. Um, I know a lot of creatives that have sold incredible um, creations to international studios for a pittance. Right. You know, and, and I think, you know, if you cannot afford um, to get a team, other intermediaries, distributors, etc., into your core team mm -hmm. or salespeople, for me, that is the, the, the importance of hubs. Yes. To really understand you, guide you, work with you, um, build, build the venture as a business. Right. Um, quite often, creatives want to be the creator, but then you need to work with producers or, or other people who have that competency. Just to go to a bit of an extreme um, of a conversation that I've, I've had with, um, with, with other people who come from the opposite end of the scale, who would say, I see ideas all the time. Ideas are free. Ideas are kind of everywhere, right? Um, now, with that in mind, how do creatives then add value to some of these ideas, add value? You mentioned the business side, which is very important, and this is part of it. But how do I add value um, to, to my ideas, to my concepts, so that they, they become viable as a business or even as something that I can sell to a studio, to, to, to somebody else that can take it forward? Mm. I think, uh, and that's not an easy answer, but um, early on I spoke about spending time with like-minded people sure. or maybe with unlikely, unlikely, unlike... Unlikely allies. Unlikely allies, <laughs> yes. unlikely allies. You know, this is where we really need to expose ourselves to other contexts that we're not used to. You know, it's very rare that you find a creative at a business school, executive education workshop, mm -hmm. or, or finance masterclass, or um, policy dialogue. Um, creatives often want to create, and I think for me, it's that stretch gold. Like, what is that almost like 20% stretch you're willing to give yourself to understand the other side um, of it. I'm not sure if I'm answering the question, but I think like exposure to different contexts is super important. There aren't copy and paste solutions 
to your businesses. But there are certain frameworks you can draw from. I mean, Business Model Canvas has been around for a minute. Mm. Um, and I'm in the next two weeks running a Business Model Canvas workshop with our animation studio um, at work. And I'm, what I am starting to notice is that mainstream, if you like mainstream business uh, or, or tech entrepreneurs and creatives are dealing with the same issue, but we, we call it different things. Right. You know, so quite often in the, in the creative industries, we speak about audience development. Yes. Um, and... Um, and in the pure tech entrepreneur world, we speak about uh, customer acquisition. Yes. Customer acquisition, or it's the same thing, but different language. Mm-hmm. So we need to be a bit more agile and just start looking at where and how can we learn uh, from others without assuming that we are from a different world. They don't get it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, this morning in my team uh, meeting, we saw again, you know, creators were speaking about the pitch Bible and um, our tech team was speaking about the, their deal book. You know, it's the same thing, Mm. you know, so just like being open to listen and then you can see, like, get some insights about where and how you can package your work and see your work as a product that needs to go to market. I know sometimes that's seen as dirty language and I've been called a capitalist in in, in the music industry. I'm like, guys, you're speaking about sustainable livelihoods and I'm saying entrepreneurship is a mechanism for sustainable livelihood. We're saying the same thing. We've got the same agenda. Yes. We're naming it differently. Right. But expose yourself to these environments. I see you as, as an evangelist for inclusive innovation. And you, you talk about inclusive innovation a lot. Can you describe what it is and how this manifests itself in society? Mm, mm. I think for me right now, a lot of my current agenda, and it's probably an agenda for a while, around inclusive innovation, specifically about socioeconomic inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, we also do a lot in gender inclusion at Simulukong, but I want to speak about socioeconomic for a minute. Sure. I'm, I get frustrated when I see wasted talent, if you like. And quite often we look at someone and we make these assumptions because they don't come from the right pedigree, mm. if you like. So people with access keep getting more and more opportunities. And when I look at, just to give an example, something like, like animation. Yes. Before you go digital, you need to learn how to draw. How many of our kids in townships in rural are sketching away? Yes. And, and they're masters at, what, at, their, at that talent, but they don't have that stepping stone to go to the next level. Right. Now... Right now, and again, I'm speaking about animation just because my, part of my, my, my master's dissertation is looking at the influence of cultural diplomacy in South Africa's animation industry. Yeah. And I am seeing there's such high demand globally for African creative content. Mm-hmm. People, and there's not enough supply to, de- to meet demand. Mm. But we keep say, going to the same networks, the same angles to, to look for content. Um, we need to actually grow the spy. We need to invite more people and make it a bit easier for people to uh, to get access. And like I say, it's not for me. It's not a shame. Yeah, it makes business sense, and it's just the most logical thing to do. Africa's the biggest one, biggest with the biggest continent <laughs> in the world. Like it doesn't make sense that we're not at tables. So any conversation, animation, climate change. Whatever, my mission is to put a spotlight on African talent and to make sure that we, we both have a voice at the table, but we're building tables that suit us and that we're actually giving feedback to the world that actually you guys need to innovate more. Mm. If I look at a lot of hubs um, in Europe, heavily subsidized by government, heavily, we don't have that luxury in Africa. So we need to create viable business models. So by having Africa hub founders in a conversation, that's already creating a sense of inclusion for global hub networks. And they can learn from the diversity that we're bringing in, in diversity models that we're bringing to, to the conversation. This, this idea of, you know, of, of um, the need for African content, especially African stories in various, in various um, places, more so within the animation or animated space. I'm seeing a lot a rise in it now with the likes of Disney Plus and Netflix kind of adopting that and 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 bring it to the fore. Um have how can digital play a role in that? Because again, by and large, what 
it needs as a platform, right? I mean, there's a there's a um, there are many comics or animators in South Africa that I've kind of seen doing African language content and putting it up on YouTube, for instance, and all of that. How can digital play a role in that, or how can creatives almost use digital as a stepping stone to them being on bigger and better platforms? Sure. I think firstly I'll say the gift of the pandemic. <laughs> I think, you know, the gift of the pandemic showed us that animation industries were growing and thriving during lockdown. Yeah. People were consuming content at a ridiculous fashion. There's also Cartoon Network. There's a whole lot of channels that are actively seeking our content because that's what consumers want. Mm -hmm. And um, the animators were actually happy to work at home because they could get more done. I think what few people know is that South Africa is one of the, the um, service workers, service work hotspots of animation in the world. So we're working on other people's productions and supporting them to win Emmys and even go to the Oscars. Yeah. Very few people know that that's, that's a talent coming directly from South Africa. Where I'm trying to get us is, yes, we can continue to do service workers, but we need far more people who are developing, again, IP comes up, um, original content. We've got our own mythology. We've got our own narratives. But we need to look at ownership. One of the problems with retaining local ownership is that we don't have sufficient local broadcasters to stream uh. local content. So we're at the mercy of international broadcasters to exactly take our content to market. And then quite often that's at an imbalance rate or, or, or fee or we have to sell content. Now, you... You, you you are part of. I mean, you've mentioned that you 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 know you're part, you've been part of and you're part of hubs and you see hubs making um, an impact in a lot of these places. Outside of structures like Timulhong and other formations, why, in your view, do we not come together more often to co-create solutions that benefit society? Mm. What's the hurdle? No, I think even before I got into physical hubs and physical innovation yeah. spaces, I mean. For me, universities are breeding grounds for innovation. Schools are. I, I would love us to invest more in student clubs. Mm -hmm. I remember when I studied at Rao, the Ransafrikaans Universiteit, that's not UJ. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I needed to go make a case to the Dean of Students about why they should allow me to keep running um, ISEC and, and Toastmasters at that time. And you literally came with a business proposal and it was rubbish, to be honest. It wasn't that, but to me, it was like so serious, such a serious pitch. Yeah, yeah. And they, it was an easy yes. You know, like in, in hindsight, it's an easy yes. But in that moment, you know, that was entrepreneurial grit, just asking for that permission. And I think, you know, we don't have to have big fancy things. Yes. We just, you know, need to find like, I'm interested in whatever topic. Mm. And it can be about food gardens or whatever. We're seeing the problem. There's not enough food locally. I'm seeing that as a local community member. Just asking around who else is interested. I'll bring some buckets. What can you bring? You know, it, it, it needs to start simple. My, my concern is that we've, we've brought too much jargon into what we are doing. Mm -hmm. And then it doesn't become accessible to people. Quite often people are doing, they are meeting and maybe we're not naming it as innovation because it doesn't fit our lens. Right, yeah, yeah. So, so firstly, simplify it and look for people around you who can, who can enable it. And I think I like this idea of, of the fact that there are, there are people everywhere, that schools, varsity, wherever you are, there might be someone there. And it goes back to the point you were making about... Um, not just naming the elephant, but also being cognizant of the fact that it's, we're probably trying to solve a similar problem and being vocal about the problem that you're trying to solve. Yeah, yeah. And then there are probably a few principles I, I live with by now, even though the <laughs> yeah. facilitation, typical facilitation principles, I've, I've started embodying it. You know, we speak about empathy as a principle of design thinking. Um, and now corporates have, have, been, have caught on to this a few years ago, but it's for the end goal, monetization only. There's nothing wrong with monetization. Sure. My issue is that we cannot have empathy is not an eight to five. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
It's a practice. It's a way of living. It's a way of showing up in the world with empathy, with generosity, with openness. Um, the practice of suspending judgment. If we learn to suspend judgment, we, it doesn't mean let go of your view. Just suspend it to listen. What is the next person saying? Because you just may pick up something that may enrich you. Um, the idea of, um, for me, the law of two feet. You know, if I find myself in a place that I can't make a contribution um, and I don't feel valued walking and leaving and going to a place where I can. Mm -hmm. And then for me, it's also holding an attitude of, of invitation. I'm always inviting people to things, <laughs> the biggest, <laughs> the smallest. My, my birthday party has become a thing yeah. now in Joburg, like because I've been having something small every year for 20 years and I get calls from November. What are you doing? I'm just like, I just dropped it on Facebook. Yeah. People shop here. Like, you know, sometimes I go extreme, but I think like we, we all can just see like where and how can we be a bit more open? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You spoke about, um, you spoke about diversity earlier and I want to go back to that because we didn't unpack that idea. Um, but so, the, the thinking that comes up for me when you, when you talk about diversity and inclusive innovation is what role does diversity play in fostering creativity and innovation as well as this inclusive innovation for us to collaborate at a large scale or on a large scale to solve societal problems? Sure, and, and I think that word large scale says it all because to be honest, diversity is hard. Mm -hmm. Diversity is annoying. Like, it will be so much easier if I meet up with four people that went to the same school in the same neighborhood with me and we do something. Mm. We understand each other. We have the same dynamic. We're going to get things done super fast. Um, but it's only going to stay either niche or in a very small segment of the market. But if you want to do something at scale, you need to expand that lens and get more views around the table. Mm. Get more insight, get more data, um, and inform the next step based on more of a broad-based opinion lens but you can't sort of like outsource um outsource diversity it needs to be part of the way of working i was looking at our team at Kong this morning Dambona is very disappointed that the um a lot of the i'm going off track now yeah sure. but <laughs> a lot of the the born trees didn't understand the importance of women's door what it meant right you know, and, and I said to them, I think we've also fallen into this way of thinking in Simulokong, we take things for granted. We have a very diverse team, gender, racial, age, even sexual orientation. Like, it's such a diverse team. And, you know, every so often we'll get another hub calling us because they need to meet quotas mm -hmm. on yeah. some or other segment in society. We haven't thought about that in years because at the nucleus, that's how we work. Mm -hmm. And it's when, how we... we, we um, when we do recruitment and selection, there is a lot of merit when we, when we um, invite people onto a program or to be part of our team. But we also make sure that, that we hold some sort of balance um, when, when inviting people to join our team and to join our community of, of entrepreneurs. There's, there's something that, that came up in a conversation we had um, in one of our episodes where we're talking about this idea of diversity and this of course was coming from you know from an agency lens an agency or business kind of perspective and I want to I'd love to hear your thoughts on it so that we talk about diversity a lot and in our talking about diversity we usually or at least diversity is usually referred to as some of the markers that you've just mentioned race uh, ethnicity sexual orientation gender all of these things and yet a lot of the time we don't almost recruits or bring people in based on the diversity of thinking that they bring to the table. How important is that? And how do you, how do you, how do you invite people in based on that as a marker? Man, such a tough question. And you ask, you're asking someone who's like not politically correct at all. And I think, you know, <laughs> for, for us, when we invite people to be part of our team, I think that is the culture shock they go through. Mm, yeah. <laughs> That we speak the smoke. We speak about everything. And it's not always, somebody is always going to feel uncomfortable sure. of what's being said at the table. But that view is there. And, and I think, you know, tension is good. Tension is healthy. I think, like, innovation is messy. Sure. Um, it's, it's sometimes borderline ugly. Like, there's friction. 
But it's in that friction where you start, you know, often think about refining something, you know, everybody speaks about what does it take to, for, to, be, to create a diamond. Yeah. So I invite the friction. Sure. And, and the thing is, if you want transformative change, you need to go through the friction yeah. and through the conflict to truly listen what's on the other side. And then almost like fish for what are the gems that have come out from it in order to develop something new that's transformative, um, post the conflict, like have a look at the conflict and say, okay, what were those elements of truth mm -hmm. that are true to both of us or to all of us in the room that's sufficient to go forward? But I don't think we should be afraid of tension or conflict. And diversity is not about sameness. It's not, um, oh, I'm losing English. Um, it's not about being agreeable all the time. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, you know, even for me as the CEO of Tsimolokong Precinct, gosh, my senior team, man, team members work on my <laughs> bloody nerves yeah. all the time. We're always arguing. Um, but the stuff that they're creating is so insane mm -hmm. that we need to agree. Like, what is this framework that we need to have alignment on? Right. And then you color in mm -hmm. what you think is important for the, for the rest. So there's some compromise, but we also know, like, these are the things we can agree on. And that's the framework. And then give people space to, to bring other stuff in. If you're enjoying The Lead Creative, please share this episode with your network and hit follow or subscribe. Enjoy the show. So, so being, being clear about the things that you, are, that, that you are willing and aren't willing to compromise on. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what measures do you use? What measures or indicators do you use to evaluate the success of creative collaboration in, in, your, in your team or in terms of whatever it is that you're trying to achieve? You know, I think one, and so funny, before I hopped on the call, myself and the COO were speaking about KPIs and, you know, we were debating like, she was like, no, I'm not going to put a very specific number. It doesn't make sense because we're in an innovative environment. Yes. You know, we may offshoot that or the market shift so fast that we may then not achieve achieve that. I think for me, the framework needs to be just, you know, clear enough. So whatever agency you work with, you know, like maybe it, it is about for the next year, this is the kind of client um, I want to onboard, right. um, you know, or um, sorry, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm making it up as I go along. But um, have a few key things, and not too many, three to five objectives you'd like to achieve mm -hmm. over the next year. Right. Um, and for me, I use it as a North Star, and I try to overshoot where I can. Um, but the thing is, if you are in an innovative environment, it's experimental. You cannot be too fixed on the ultimate outcome you want to achieve. And for me, this is sometimes where we need to educate our clients to say, look, You want to be in an innovative environment is emergent. It wouldn't be emergent if you were so clear about the outcome, then it's not innovative. Mm. You know, so I love working with steering committees. For me, that is a touch point where you and the client take shared responsibility for the outcome. As soon as the client just says, oh, it's on you, forget it. There's, when something goes wrong, it's all your fault. Right. Um, but mm. if it is a conversation and you keep, uh, you know, set some milestones in place, and review and look at where do we need to adapt. In entrepreneurship, we always speak about pivot. But they need to be in it with you. I've walked away from clients that wouldn't. Um, I'll just give you one example. A client um, wants us to train um, learners with disabilities right. uh, yes. that they're going to absorb into the corporate. Mm. But number one, they didn't speak to HR. So, H, so they're using their transformation money to pay us. Cool, grand. But they didn't align with the HR. So HR was like, what must I do with the people? And then thirdly, when I started asking, but what does your tech team need? The tech team need gave very clear sets of future skills they need in their business. Hmm. And they've communicated with HR. So I was like, guys, let's have HR as the main client because they'll already onboard HR and then you use your transformation money to pay for it. Yes. All your objectives are met. Hmm. But then it's all of us sitting around the table to do an evaluation every three months. 
Yeah, because otherwise it gets it gets it gets lost in that in that haze of different people wanting different things, and um, you wanting to, of course, work alongside whatever it is that the objective was given. But actually, the at the end, the people will come out of this training or come out of this process and not be absorbed as as promised. And creatives and developers always know the client never gives the full scope. They don't even understand how to frame a scope when, when inviting you. So never take full responsibility for the success of something. Really try to negotiate upfront that it is a partnership uh, that you're entering into. Mm. Now for a question that um, I guess might be, I don't know, I don't know if it might be a bit complex, but it's something that's, um, that I've been wrestling with as a thought and something that comes up quite a bit in these conversations that we have. And, and this is, how does the process of scaling affect the nature of collaboration? As you grow, how do you manage the changes that come with that growth? Ah, sure. <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm in it. <laughs> I'm in it. We've, we've prototyped and... Um, you know, I, I often think about some of the first principles in the development world. You cannot go to another community without speaking to the chief and asking for permission to, to operate there. Mm. You know, and I think for me, it's not just about arriving in a new place. And sometimes it's a physical location. Sometimes it's just um, scaling in numbers. But every, I think, gateway of scale has its own set of stakeholders and um, gatekeepers. Mm if you like. If anything, I'm a lobbyist. Yeah, yeah. I've never named myself as that. But conversations are key. And you need to, number one, make, uh, not number one, some of the things you need, like I say, conversation with all the key stakeholders. Always, I'm always doing stakeholder mapping to look at who needs to be part of this opportunity we're working with. Secondly, um, do we have the operational capabilities yeah. to do this work? Mm. You know, get that DNA down. Like once you've gotten the DNA down and the operation, the back-end operation, then it's easier to move. And again, for me, working with a bunch of creators at Simulokong, my team doesn't want to do that. Our theme this year is about is building for resilience. Yeah. You know, we, we cannot be a resilient, high-growth entity that scales beyond Joburg if we do not have the basics right. So that principle of writing down. I'll just give you another example. Um, our, our software, we sometimes have tension between our software development team and the maker team. Makers love to make, and they make on the fly, they look at the problem, they make the solution. But the thing is, when they're confronted with another um, similar problem, they have to remake from the start. And then we've got our developer, software development community that uses engineering principles. They want to look at the entire system and system change before they start the work. And something takes forever, it's frustrating. And we try to get the two to meet in the middle. Mm. Um, make sure that you understand the problem, you get enough down yeah. and move and build as you go along, but document as you go along. Um, so the, like I say, it's a blend of, of operation um, and making sure that you have a market understanding wherever you want to grow and that you onboarding stakeholders in, in that place. Now, Leslie, you, you've mentioned a lot from, uh, I think, from appealing to people, you know, emotionally, appealing to, to, to people's logic, um, finding stakeholders, collaborating with them, partnering, and, of course, um, creating solutions that, that work and, and being open and transparent about, about the process. Now, in closing, can you describe some key strategies or, or talk through at least some key strategies to inspire others and inspire organizations in maintaining creativity at a large scale um, and also, you know, creativity at a large scale that enables change in society, positive change in society. Have you got some ideas or at least some closing or sort of thoughts that can take us there, that can take organizations to that point? Sure. Um, what immediately comes to mind is, is often this, this um, you know, people say, don't be the smartest in the person in the room. Like literally, that is so true. Make sure you hire more people that know more about a subject than you. And, you know, and I think why that is such a difficult principle is because we are in this um, time in society where everybody wants to be a thought leader and the web influencer. <laughs> so you want to be the key talent in the room mm -hmm. and own that. Sure. 
you know, I think number one, identify people you want to work with that know more than you sometimes of a subject matter and give them the limelight. I think part of the reason why Simulakong grew so fast is that I've got a team of thought leaders. Yeah. And what is nice is I'm at that point where people don't necessarily want me in the room. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, I would have loved to go to that international. <laughs> <laughs> but I wasn't invited. The team member was. Yeah. But you're only going to operate on scale if you've got a bunch of excellent people on your back. But as the leader within that situation, you need to give other people the glory. You know, so I've been really working with my team to build their profile, public brand, but also I've got a rule. If I didn't design something, don't quote me in the media. Because mm. number one, it'll be embarrassing if people come to me and ask me a question I don't know. But scale is about people. Like you, creating a collaborative um, workspace is not hogging the limelight. There's room for us all. The same thing when growing partners around you. It's about constantly showcasing and celebrating the partners that are with you. Um, we're at the point now with, with some of the, the partners where, where they've got sticky situations with um, their other um, suppliers. Sometimes they'll ask us to work with a supplier to improve that supplier's work <laughs> to unlock yeah, the yeah, door. Yeah. So now we're suddenly getting involved in policy and conflict resolution with other partners. We'll get paid for that piece of work, but it's not our project. That other, their supplier is going to benefit. But if we make that supplier look good, you know, it's not about uh, collecting brownie points, but they appreciate us and they will invite us into a similar situation in future. So your business model evolves. The way you show up evolves, but like literally it becomes that mindset of like, actually guys, there's room for us all. Mm -hmm. I think for me, if there's anything I want to say to people, there's room for us all, showcase and celebrate other people and they'll appreciate you back. And that's how we, we grow and scale together. Yeah, it's not often that we quote musicians, but basically make the circle bigger. It's, right? <laughs> Just because I'm <laughs> But it is. Yeah. And, and people like honesty. It's such, you know, I know it sounds so 70s, but like literally people like... Like, honestly, and I know this isn't that 70s show, but uh, people respond to it. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much, Leslie. That was, yeah, that was amazing. Thank you, Mo. Thank you for listening to The Lead Creative. Did you get one insight that's worth sharing from this episode? Please share it with your network or your friends. Pop me some of your ideas and innovative finds on Twitter, on at Mongesi. This podcast is available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also find me on mongezi.com.